Hello, Real Life family and friends. Pastor Tim with you again during this Christmas season. And last week we were talking about uh, why did Jesus come? Uh, this Christmas season I've been thinking about just uh, the anticipation uh, of the people back at that time when, when Jesus was born and for hundreds of years them anticipating and waiting for the promised you know, Messiah to show up. And, and then it happened. It just and it happened. And uh, out of all of that, uh, thinking about how Jesus came and thinking about his purpose for coming, I want to build on that message from last week and talk about the fact that Jesus is coming again. And just like the world was anticipating, those of faith were waiting for this promised Messiah to come. So we too are in, in the same setting today. We are waiting. We are anticipating. We are hoping for the return of our Messiah. Not to save us, but for a different purpose this time. And so today we're going to talk about Jesus is coming again. Amen? He's coming again. And uh, if we have time, I want to go through five different questions. I want to answer five different questions about this topic, Jesus is coming again. First of all, why? Why is Jesus coming again? The second question is, when is Jesus coming? Everybody wants to know the answer to that one, right? <laughs> and the third question is, where is Jesus coming to? The fourth is, how do we live differently in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again? How does that affect our lives today? And finally, how can we speed up his coming? So let's look at these together. Approximately 1400 B.C. is when God uh, had Moses begin to write the scriptures for us, the Torah, as, Jew, as Jews would call it, the Torah. And within that, the, the Old Testament, we see hundreds of prophecies of the Messiah coming. Uh, even in uh, the writings of Isaiah, which I referenced last week, Isaiah was, let's just approximate, around 700 B.C. So with Isaiah's writings, even those writings were 700 years before the coming of Jesus, before the birth of Jesus. So for 700 to 1400 years, you know, there's different prophecies throughout the, the Old Testament. People were anticipating the fulfillment of these prophecies or these promises that God had made to the people. And so can you imagine just the, uh, just the, the, the desire to see the fulfillment of these for such a long time? And now today, we are standing here today in history, and we've been waiting for his second return for about 2,000 years, much longer than the first group waited to see those prophecies fulfilled. And so there's a lot of people that would doubt that Jesus is even coming back. They would doubt that uh, God is even real or exists just because of the longevity of this time period in which we are still waiting for Jesus' return. But I want to assure you, Jesus is coming again. There was some ambiguity and confusion, though, about these prophecies. You see, some prophecies, as I outlined last week, were painting a picture of a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant, if you will, who would come as a sin offering on our behalf, as I mentioned last week. And that's what Jesus did. He actually laid his life down. He gave his life. He took our punishment upon him. He took 
um, our sin upon him. He took our guilt upon him. And he bore our sin. He bore our iniquities. He bore our failures, our guilt, our condemnation, so that we could be free from sin and we could be healed from sin's effects and, uh, and we could be forgiven of our sin. That's the good news of Christmas. And that was the reason why Jesus came. Last week, I, I answered the question, why did Jesus come? He came to save us. He came to save me. He came to save you. He came to save each and every person who would call on him, who would trust in him. And the good news is, it's not up to my performance or what I need to do or what I shouldn't be doing, but it's based on me calling out to Jesus, placing my faith in you, placing your faith in him as the Messiah and giving our, our life to him. And so that's what we have done and we are saved. We're forgiven of our sins. And God is healing us from the effects of our sin. And God is setting us free from the power of sin over our lives. He's given us a new life to live. And that's, that's what a lot of these prophecies are about. But there's many more prophecies in the scriptures that talk about a different aspect of this Messiah. But before we move on, do you remember John the Baptist pointing at Jesus one day and all of his followers listened to him as he pointed and said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that was one aspect of the Messiah. And many, many prophecies talked about this. But it was confusing because there was almost some opposite prophecies about a Messiah coming to be a conquering king. Not a suffering servant, but a conquering king. And, uh, and so, as, as these are intermingled, there was confusion and not everybody understood exactly what was going to happen. This conquering king would come to judge the wicked and to free the righteous, protect the righteous, rescue the righteous. And he would establish his kingdom forever and usher in a time of eternal peace. And many of his disciples were thinking this during Jesus' time. In fact, remember the time where Jesus begins to talk about how he is going, his life is going to be taken from him. He is about to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. And Peter pulls him aside and actually rebukes Jesus. He says, no, Lord, that will never happen to you. No, that can't be how this goes down, right? And Jesus turns to Peter and he rebukes him. Remember, he said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That's Matthew 16, 23. And so Peter is thinking, no, no, you're the conquering king. You're the Messiah. You're here to defeat Rome. You're here to reestablish um, the kingdom of Israel. We, we want to be ruling and reigning with you. You can't die, right? So that's why there was confusion even among his disciples. So how do we reconcile these two vastly different categories of prophecies of a Messiah? The suffering servant and the conquering king. Well, some are trying to figure out, does that mean there's going to be two different messiahs with two different roles? Could these two, or could these two opposite um, purposes and functions exist in one? How, would, how is that even possible? And so no one predicted what would happen. No one fully understood the plan of God. 
And we still only know what God has shown us. We still don't know everything. Of course, we don't know the whole future. We have little, we still have prophecies, but we're still left to try to figure out, you know, what does that exactly mean? 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says this, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And so he's reflecting on just the mystery of God and Jesus' coming and how, how amazing this mystery has been. And he says this, He appeared, he's talk, talking about Jesus, of course, He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Paul often talks about the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who would have thought that this was God's plan. You know, no one. No one. You see, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Isaiah 55, 9 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, God is saying, So are my thoughts and my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And God is able to do some things that we can't comprehend. For instance, Romans 8, 28 tells us that God is able to use all things to our good. He can even use evil to our good. Even sin, he can turn to our good. It says, and we know in Romans 8, 28, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we look at Jesus coming. And if we just take an honest look through the eyes of flesh, you know, the eyes of, let's say, Peter, right? And here we are, Jesus is on the cross. This innocent man, this man of great inspiration, this man who did amazing miracles, who was, who, who was attracting thousands and thousands of people and giving people hope in the midst of darkness, healing people of sicknesses, diseases, casting demons out of people, who had done no wrong, is now stripped naked, punished, and hanging on a cross and dying, and he dies. He dies. This makes no sense whatsoever. And what looks from the eyes of limited understanding as an incredibly deflating and defeating moment is actually the will of God. This makes no sense to us if we're honest about it, if we think about it. If we were there, we would be beating our chest too. We would be like, why? Why would this happen? This, this was the Messiah. We thought he was the Messiah. Look at all the miracles. Look at all the good he did. Why does he have to die? Why is this over? It's all over? Really? And we would have been struggling with those thoughts. And sometimes today in our story, we have some of the similar things that are going on. We could be going through things. We can be experiencing things. And we could be beating our chest and saying, why God? This makes no sense to me. This can't be right. Why, why would I have to do this? Why is that happening? Why didn't that happen? Why do, it seems hopeless. But the mystery of the cross is even though it looked that way, it was the will of God and God turned it to our good and turned it to Jesus' good. And the prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 53, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Where were the protesters there at the cross? Where were the people with the signs and the megaphones, you know, 
protesting this innocent, amazing person without sin who had helped so many uh, being unjustly killed on a cross on display? Where were those people? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He, he was killed, right? For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And then here's the kicker, Isaiah 53, 10, 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Did you hear that? It was God's will being done. God's will was to crush him and cause him to suffer. Why? Why? Well, in the moment, we had no idea that what Jesus was doing was actually purchasing our eternal life through our forgiveness of sins. We didn't see that, but that was the will of God. And the Bible tells us early on that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the shedding of the blood of animals is not equivalent to the shedding of human blood. So human blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And it was God's will to do that himself for you. And yet we didn't understand that because God's ways are so much higher than our ways. And I just want to encourage you, no matter what you're going through, it may not always look right. It may not always seem right. It may be very confusing and you might be in a, a place of despair at times in your life. But the Bible says that God works all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so we trust him. And the mystery of the Messiah is beginning to be unfolded. As Jesus um, is buried in that tomb, and three days later, he rises again, the mystery begins to be solved. And God begins to show us the majesty of his plan of salvation. Wow. So there's a worldwide story going on. God is at work in the world. God's will is marching forward for the redemption of all of humanity. And so there is this cosmic, this big picture plan that's, that's marching forward. But there's also an individual um, plan for you that God's will is marching forward for you. God is with you. Uh, he's working all things to the good for you and your purpose. And God will reveal to you in time what that will is. And so we will um, see darker days. We may find ourselves in greater turmoil than what we see now on a cosmic level, on a worldwide level, as a nation um, and as individuals. You know, but that doesn't mean God is losing. It doesn't mean that God is absent or that God doesn't exist. No, it just means that we need to trust in him. Because Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And he's coming as a conquering king. And he will use everything to bring about his perfect will. And so the mystery is revealed to us. The tension between a suffering servant and the conquering king. This mystery is revealed to us at the resurrection of Jesus on that Sunday morning. We now know that the prophecies are not speaking about two different messiahs, but one messiah who comes two times with two distinct 
purposes, and that is Jesus. Jesus comes twice. He is coming again. We know he came the first time. That's Christmas, and we know he's coming again. So today, let's talk about Jesus is coming back. He is both the suffering servant and the conquering king. Prophecies concerning the second coming of the Messiah are 1,845 different verses in the Bible talking about Jesus coming back. That's outnumbering the references to his first coming at, by a ratio of 8 to 1. Eight to one. So how confident can we be that Jesus is coming back? Well, we know he came the first time, so we can be eight times more confident he is coming the second time. Because the scriptures and the prophecies are bombarding us with this promise that he's coming. And 17 different Old Testament books contain verses about the second coming. 23 of the 27 New Testament books also mention his second return. And in the New Testament, one out of every 30 verses, that ratio, uh, teaches us that Jesus is coming back to this earth. Wow! So, let's talk about these five questions. First of all, why? Why is Jesus coming again? Well, the first time he came, and many of us will refer to this first time, he came as a lamb. But the second time he's coming, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. John the Baptist said, look at the Lamb of God. His purpose was to take away our sins, to save us. But the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is coming to deliver the righteous and to judge the wicked. When Jesus returns, in, in essence, it will be the end of the human experience of time because we will be ushered into a different state of eternal existence. We will be given new bodies. There will be judgment of all wickedness and evil will come to an end. Hallelujah. All of sin will be eradicated. All sickness, all brokenness, all rebellion, all the wicked will be judged. All the righteous will be saved, will be rescued. This is a whole different ballgame when Jesus comes back. That's why he tarries so long, that others will be saved before he comes. It is basically judgment day, isn't it? Now, Enoch speaks of Jesus' return. Uh, it's recorded in Jude 1, verses 14 to 15. It says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them, Quote, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Daniel prophesies of Jesus' return. In Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is a vision Daniel is having 600 years before Jesus is born. 
And it's not about the birth of Jesus. It's about the return of Jesus. So that's 2,600 years ago, Daniel had this prophecy, this vision, or this prophecy of Jesus coming back. Jesus, of course, spoke of his own return as well. While he was alive, he spoke of these things, but not everybody understood it. After he was resurrected, they started to get the picture. Matthew 24, he says this in verse 27, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Skipping a few verses, it says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other, and we will be gathered together. Jesus also says this in John chapter 14 to his disciples. He's comforting them. He says, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he tells them, you believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And these are the words of Jesus himself. And finally, um, and not finally, but there's hundreds of, of verses in the Bible, as I mentioned, about Jesus' return. But the last one I want to mention here is when Jesus ascends into heaven in front of his disciples after he blessed them on the Mount of Olives. And then all of a sudden, two angels appear with the disciples. And they say this, men of Galilee, they said, this is Acts 1, verse 11. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. <laughs> wow. So Jesus is coming again. Now, where will Jesus return? Well, just as those angels said to the disciples, um, and they were on the Mount of Olives, and it says, just as he went, so will he return. The Bible tells us, he will return to the earth, specifically in the land of Israel, and even more specifically than that, on the Mount of Olives, where he ascended. The Mount of Olives is just a little bit east of Jerusalem, and in fact, it is on a mountain. And when you're there, I was there, when you're there, you are looking down and you see Jerusalem right in front of you. And Jesus will come and his feet will land on the Mount of Olives, and he will go to Jerusalem. He will walk down there. But this is what the Bible says in Zechariah 14.4. It's a prophecy. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. Why is he coming back to the Mount of Olives near Jerusalem in Israel? Why? Because that's God's land. That has been the epicenter of God's display of the revelation of his plan to humanity. From the very beginning, it's been referred to as the promised land. God refers to it as his land. The Bible says his eyes are always on this land. And he says it belongs to him. 2 Chronicles 6.6 6 says, But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there 
And I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. So God says, I've chosen this land, right? Deuteronomy eleven twelve. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. Isn't that cool? God's eyes are on the land of Israel. Leviticus 25, 23, the land, and God has given the instructions to the people when they enter this land. He says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. It's mine. And you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. So the land of Israel, in particular, the land of Jerusalem, and in particular, the Temple Mount. That's where the temple uh, that God showed David to build was built right there. And that's where Jesus will go into when he returns. Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives with Jerusalem in his sights. Zechariah 14.9 says, At that time the Lord will be king over the whole earth. The conquering king will have come. On that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Now, when will this happen? When will Jesus return? Well, he says this to us in Matthew 24, 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have a more detailed answer for you. But he says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Only the Father knows. So we do not know exactly when Jesus will return. Many people have predicted different times and dates, and they've all been wrong. You know, it's not about predicting dates. But what we do know is this, and this is the important part, and this is really what, how I want to answer the question. What we do know is this. We don't know exactly when Jesus is coming, but we know his return is imminent. Imminent. Imminent means likely to occur at any moment. At any moment, Jesus could come back. You say, oh, come on, it's been 2,000 years. What, you know, it could be another 1,000 years. Yes, it could be another 1,000 years. Or it could be another 10 minutes. And the way that God wants you and I to live is His return is imminent. Any minute. And that's why I want to answer the next question right now. What is our response to the prophecies and the reality that Jesus is coming again? How do we live life then? in light of this. And I can say this, many people of faith, every generation has lived with this anticipation that Jesus is coming again. All the way back, right in the early days, you see the apostles, they think it's going to happen any day, any minute, any day, within their lifetime. And it didn't. But they lived like it was. And hundreds of years later, people are still doing that. And now thousands of years later, we are still doing that. We are living as if Jesus is coming any day, any minute. This any minute mindset keeps us in a state of anticipation, keeps us with hope, right? It keeps us prepared, and it keeps us responsible to do what God's called us to do. We are on a mission. The Bible says over and over again, this is not our home. This fallen world is not where we belong. We don't belong to the kingdom of this world. We belong to the kingdom of God. This is not our eternal dwelling. It's, it's a temporary uh, part of our existence, but this is not our permanent address. Okay? And so with all of that in mind, God wants you and I to live as if he is coming back any minute. And you know what? 
Honestly, it really seems like it to me. I've never felt that the return of Christ is closer uh, at any other moment in my life than I do today. Just looking at the world events, looking at what's going on, and just the sense that things are marching towards that great and glorious day when we will hear the trumpet call and we will be gathered to Christ in the sky, right? In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives three parables about the, his coming back. And he's teaching us and emphasizing three times in succession, hammering this message of how are we to live in light of his return. The first parable is about the parable of the ten virgins. And the theme of this is keep watch, right? Be ready. So we are to be watching for Jesus' return. We are to be ready for his return. We're not to be busying ourselves with things of this world, but attentive to heaven. The next parable is the parable of the talents. And this message can be summarized by this. Be diligent. Be doing what you're supposed to be doing. Take what God has given you and multiply it. Put it to work. Make something of it. Build the kingdom with what I have given you. Invest what I have put into your hands. Invest it and make it grow. Build the kingdom. Be diligent. Be busy doing what God has called you to do when he comes back. And the third parable is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And the theme of this really is everything matters. Loving people matters. Giving someone some clothes, some food, visiting someone who's sick or in prison. Doing practical, loving people right where they are matters. To not live a self-centered life. To not just be consumed with your own agenda. To not just be um, carrying on and trying to build a kingdom for yourself on this earth but rather be building the kingdom of God, which is always done through love, through laying one's life down and loving others. It's what Christ did for us. He laid his life down in the full expression of God's love to elevate us. And that's what Christ has called all of us to do. And so these parables together are just three body blows of the same message. Be ready. Keep serving. Keep loving. Uh, be diligent. Build the kingdom. Stay focused on his return. On his return. And so Jesus' message is, is not one of be fearful, you know, hide and wait, or hey, it might be a long time, so just go ahead and live your life. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying it could be any minute, it could be any day. So be ready, keep watch, be faithful, serve God, love people. So don't be deceived. Jesus is coming. Do not think that his coming is a long ways away. Uh, do not become distracted with worldly pursuits. Uh, do not give your life to things that will be destroyed, but rather commit your life fully to God and the purpose that he has for you. This is how we are to live. Do you know what the last two verses of the Bible are? It's in the book of Revelation, chapter 22. The last two verses are verse 20 and 21. Let me read those to you. He who testifies to these things says, and then red letters, which means Jesus is speaking. Yes, I am coming soon. Then the writer, who is John, says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then he blesses the reader. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. 
Amen. Woo! <laughs> what a powerful ending to the scriptures. Yes, Jesus says, I am coming soon. John's response was, Amen. I agree. So be it. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Wow. The last thing I want to share with you is it's possible to speed up the coming of Jesus. There's three things that speed up the coming of Jesus that I'm aware of at this point. One is prayer. In Matthew 6, uh, verses 9 to 10, Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your na name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, this is how you are to pray. Pray that the kingdom comes. Well, for the kingdom to come, Jesus needs to return. For the fullness of the kingdom to come, we are waiting for the return of Jesus. Right? We already have hors d'oeuvres of the kingdom. Jesus has already given us authority, the keys to the kingdom. But it will not, we will not have the fullness of the kingdom until Jesus returns. And so he told his disciples, and he's telling us, pray. Pray that the kingdom of God comes and the will of God is done on the earth. So let's pray. Let's pray to speed up the return of Jesus. The second thing is preaching. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus will return, but first, there needs to be the preaching of the gospel to all nations, to all tribes, to all peoples, so that everyone has the opportunity to be saved. So, let's share the good news. Share the good news to people around you. Let's continue as a church to reach out. We are partnering with different ministries that are sharing the gospel in other countries, in some in some instances, to people who have never heard the gospel before. Isn't that exciting? So we need to pray. We need to preach. We need to share. We need to tell the good news. And finally, repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. In other words, He's not slow in coming, as some people think. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Repentance means change your mind. Change your mind. Come to God. Rely on Him instead of yourself. And so when people get saved and when people are repenting, we are speeding up the, the coming of the kingdom because God is relenting so far until all of His children, right, that He has ordained to come home, have come home. And so our job as the church, because we're still here, is to pray, to preach, and to lead people to Christ, to bring them to that place of repentance. Peter actually answers this question, what is our response? It's pretty cool. It's in chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? How are we to live? What impact is this reality supposed to have on our lives that Jesus is coming again? Do we just keep on the way we're doing? Or is there a certain way that we should be living, right? And he answers the question. And he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed 
it's coming. And speed, it's coming. He talks about living a holy and a godly life. Holiness is being separated from sin and separated to God. So the first response that Peter says we should have is because Jesus is coming again, we should be pulling away from sin and running into God. We should live a life of holiness, separating ourselves from sin and separating ourselves to God, giving our life to the purposes of God, to the activities of God, to the building of the kingdom of God, instead of building our own kingdom or dabbling in sin or selfishness or greed or lust, but we should be consecrating ourselves, separating ourselves unto God, away from sin. And the second one he mentions is godliness. And godliness is devoting to the worship and to the service of God, to become like God, separating ourselves from sin and devoting ourselves completely to God. This is our reasonable response to the truth that Jesus is coming again. Let me finish with this verse out of 1 John chapter 3, verses 2-3. to Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purifies themselves just as He is pure. I hope uh, this message, as we go into this Christmas season, I hope it stirs up an anticipation in you and that you are convinced Jesus is coming again. And not only that, but you are impacted by this truth and it compels you and propels you to live a life of holiness and godliness, of anticipation, of hope, of preparedness, of responsibility, and that we are a part of God's story. We're alive at this time while we're eagerly praying and seeking the return of Jesus. We are also actively reaching out with his message and his love. This is a season for us to not just be reminiscent or nostalgic, but on task, on purpose to share the good news of what God has done that's available to every living being. Every soul can be saved if they will turn and place their faith in Jesus. So be that herald of the gospel. Live it out and let's together continue to be excited that Jesus is coming again, our conquering King. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this message and whatever, Lord, you're trying to say to our hearts, we pray that you would just strengthen that message within us and you would inspire us, Lord, uh, to live this life at its fullness, the, the life that you have for us to live, that it would be, that our lives would be fully devoted to you as we eagerly anticipate and desire and long for your return to bring the fullness of your kingdom uh, into existence here on the earth. Jesus, we worship you. We praise you. You are the Messiah. You're both the suffering servant who took our sins away and you are a conquering king who's coming to establish righteousness and justice for all eternity. We give you thanks and praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
in his name. Amen. God bless you.